Well, stay in your lane. Stick with what you know. I'm sure they told Jefferson that, and they told probably a lot of them that. You know, you, you don't know anything about running a country. Probably. Has anybody ever told that to you? Have you ever said it to anyone yourself? It's an admonishment I've been thinking about while sort of reflecting on this passage. Our reluctance to let other people change, evolve, and grow into the people that they were God intended them to be. Our resistance to changing ourselves, even. Our fear of the familiar becoming strange. Thirteen colonies becoming a new country, just a, 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 a carpenter's kid becoming on the side. That's where it came to mind. But it's a good passage for this weekend because it speaks to the unfamiliar, the, the, the familiar becoming unfamiliar and change that you didn't expect in ways that you just never saw coming. So in this reading, Jesus arrives back in Nazareth, his hometown. I like how Mark uses that word. He says hometown. Uh, after a long stretch of fruitful ministry, really making an impact in those first five chapters, I mean, burning up the Galilee. And in the weeks preceding his return, he secured the loyalty of 12 disciples. He's described the kingdom of God with provocative parables. He's exercised demons. He's healed the sick. He's calmed the storm. He's raised uh, Jerry's little daughter. Uh, the, the, the woman with the issue of blood has come to him and she's touched his, the hem of his garment. And he, he, and he is coming into his own in uh, Matthew 5. He's become a local hero, a folk hero. If, if nothing else, but burgeoning beyond a folk local hero into a national hero of some respect. And uh, or so we would think if Mark's gospel didn't disabuse us, in this week's story, Jesus enters the synagogue of his boyhood, his home church, in our language, and he begins to teach in the tradition of the rabbis. And they've got the pens ready to pop his balloon. At first, things go very well. His townspeople receive his words with, as we heard, astonishment and curiosity. Where did this man get all this? They asked each other. What wisdom has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? They've heard about the demons. And by then, almost without warning, it's like, Somebody snaps a finger, flips a switch, and something happens. Someone in the crowd, perhaps a jealous old neighbor of Mary's or a childhood rival of Jesus's or, or some notorious village gossip who loves stirring up dissension, starts asking prickly questions. Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary? The brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are, are not his sisters sitting here among us? At this point, the text tells us the mood in the synagogue shifts quickly and appreciation morphs into accusation. Curiosity becomes contempt and the people take offense. 
And they decided that Jesus is presuming too much, exceeding his bounds. He's not staying in his lane. And the only reason to identify someone by his mother in Jesus' day is to question his legitimacy. There's no word of Joseph, but by his mother. That's a, that's, that's a specific thing Mark is wanting to convey that these people did to highlight the fact that no one knows for sure who his father was. In other words, to refer to Jesus as the son of Mary is a calculated act on behalf of the fellow villagers, a weaponized use of Jesus' birth, bringing it up in his face, his, his birth story, to try to humiliate him into silence. And in the social system where one's status is fixed at birth, it is not possible for someone like Jesus, a, a mere carpenter of questionable parentage, to amount to anything. He has no business rising above his dicey beginnings, no, no, no business speaking with authority. He has no business becoming a leader, much less a messiah. I mean, we know exactly who you are and where you come from, boy. Don't get too big for your riches. Remember your place. So, so I believe the truly sad thing about this passage, an astonishing thing about the story, is that the townspeople's suspicion and resentment, you know, Jesus is on fire for five chapters, healing, calming, doing all these great things. That the townspeople's, the Nazareth natives' suspicion and resentment diminish Jesus' ability to work good on their behalf. Mark says he can do no good deed of power there. Mark says it with kind of a grim finality. And in some mysterious and disturbing way, it's like the people's small-mindedness, their lack of trust, their, their inability to embrace a new facet of Jesus' life and mission kept them in spiritual poverty. And notice that their lack of faith wasn't a mere technicality. It has real lamentable consequences. It constrains Jesus. Their lack of faith limits what Jesus can do for them on their behalf. That's a, that's a big deal. It constrains Jesus. It blocks the healing work he longs to do for the people he loves. So pause and think about that for a moment. Do we know that our unbelief has real-world consequences? That's what Mark's telling us in the story. That our unbelief in Christ and what Jesus can do has real-world consequences. That's a gut punch. That in the mysterious economy of God, we are called to participate with God's Spirit in the transformation of the world. And that our refusal to do so, to participate with God, matters. And it matters more than we know 
and more than we realize, and more than we want to admit or accept. Wow, that's a big deal that Mark lets us in on. Something precious is lost when we fail to recognize the unfamiliar within the familiar. When we turn away from the extraordinary within the ordinary, when we miss the presence of God in our midst, and we don't engage with it. So the call of the gospel is not a call to stand still. It is a call to choose movement over stasis, a change over security, growth over decay. So I wonder, for me, this is just me talking here, how do I refuse to let others in my life grow and change? And I think that's a good lesson to take away from this as well, from what we just said and that. When I encounter other people, am I, am I putting others in that same box that the people in the Nazareth synagogue were trying to put Jesus into? Are there others that I'm trying to say, stay in your lane? Are there other people that I encounter are there other people that we encounter that we refuse to let grow and change? When I box them in, are we keeping them too narrow and too constricting? Are we saying that you will always be whatever I think you are, small, weak, broken, insufficient, or disappointed, you will never outgrow whatever you have now? You will always be recognizable, accommodating, domesticated, whatever. The world says you are. I think those are questions we must ask ourselves, particularly when we work in ministries such as Yoke Fellow, prison ministries, and others, where people have been so pigeonholed into one group. These are questions to ask ourselves as individuals and communities and as a church. What voices are we not hearing? The scandal of the incarnation is this. Think that Jesus doesn't stay in his lane and God doesn't limit God's self to our, 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 our notions of the sacred. God abounds. God moves outside the lane. God transcends. This lowly carpenter reveals himself as Lord. And the guy with the tainted birth story offers us salvation. And the hometown prophet tells us things about ourselves we'd probably not rather hear. And we might be scandalized by his lane crossing, but he's not. We might put limits on his deeds of power, but those limits won't confine him for long. We might amaze him with our unbelief, but he will call us out. Nevertheless, daring us always to see and experience him anew. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.